This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Matt Russell, and today we are breaking down the specialty retailer floor and decor. Now, prior to this breakdown, I cannot say that I thought much about floor and decor. It felt like the stereotypical specialty store that sat somewhere between a mom and pop shop and a home improvement giant. Little did I know, floor and decor had compounded revenue at nearly 30% over the past decade, and it was another business driven by things that you don't see like an inventory and logistics strategy that really feels proper for a brick and mortar business in the 21st century. Now to break down floor and decor, I'm joined by Drew Cohen of Speedwell Research. And on a personal level, this was a particularly fun experience. Drew and I met in a Goldman office in 2017. And what was intended to be a 30 minute intro discussion quickly turned into a 90 minute conversation on books. For the next two years, that would spontaneously happen every few months, hallway run ins that would lead to a conversation on books, or what was honestly a private version of business breakdowns when we had interesting companies what we were researching. So needless to say, it was great to reconnect with Drew when he left Capital Group earlier this year. Every breakdown brings something unique and Floor & Decor was no different. I hope you enjoy the episode. All right, so Drew, I was toying with where to start this conversation and something that immediately stood out to me is the relative youth of Floor & Decor. It's the rare brick and mortar concept that was founded in the 21st century that's achieved meaningful scale. At the time of this recording, it's flirting with a $10 billion enterprise value. Bring us back to the beginning, the origin story of Floor & Decor, and we could take it from there. Absolutely. And that's right. Usually when you think about a company being founded in 2000, it isn't a flooring retailer. Floor & Decor was founded by George Vincent West in 2000 in Atlanta, Georgia. The story is he was a glassware salesman. His family had a few hardware stores possibly an apocryphal story, but his wife was renovating the bathroom and she couldn't find the tile he wanted. And he went to dozens of different stores and got fed up with it and in line with entrepreneurial spirit, decided I'm going to build it myself. So the first floor and decor was a bigger storefront that carried a lot of selection. So no one else would have the same problem he would have. Fast forward just two years later, he actually sold it to a small investor group. And that investor group then had an idea of growing it into a bigger chain. And just eight years again later, flipped ownership again, this time to Aries and Freeman Spogel. From there, two years later, they installed Tom Taylor and a bunch of the other current management team. And that's where they are today. And I could pause on Tom Taylor for a second because he also has an interesting story. He started at Home Depot when he was only 16. And he was one of the youngest store managers ever, promoted at 22. And then he rised all up through the ranks of Home Depot to become the vice president of operations before then leaving for a private equity fund and then joining Floor & Decor in 2012 with a lot of the other current management team. So that's kind of where they sit today. The classic business story of find a problem and solve it. And I like the connection to Home Depot, one that we recently broke down and similar type concept where small origin story and growing from there. 
just to get a sense of this market, you talk about Home Depot and you're capturing many different things into that umbrella. How big is the flooring market? Is there any type of estimate that you can capture the TAM? So if you think of just flooring very generally, it's also kind of a funny concept to think about. But hard surface flooring has been battling it out with carpet for several decades now. And for most of building history, carpet has been the easiest to install and the cheapest. And most people opted for that. What happened a few decades ago was in part with all of the outsourcing, they were able to get hard surface flooring very cheap. And they also were able to innovate on how to install it to make it easier to install as well. So what's happened just since about 2012 is carpet has seeded about 13 points market share to hard surface flooring. So now hard surface flooring is almost 60% of the flooring market. And just to pause for a second so people know what we're talking about, What hard surface flooring is, it's everything from tile, stone, and hardwood, but also the most popular new products are what are called LVP, luxury vinyl planks, and laminate flooring. And these are mostly unnatural chemical plastic-based products that are very resilient though, and they're designed to look a lot like wood. And especially recently, they've really been able to mimic the feel and look of wood pretty well. So that TAM today, just for the hard surface flooring market, is about $41 billion. There's different ways you could gut check that estimate that we could get into, but that's what it is today. Yeah, that's a very interesting point in terms of the market share shift away from carpet. Curious to see whether you think that's a secular change, a cyclical change. Is there any way to measure that or a way that management thinks about that in terms of where a new normal might be? market share-wise for hardwood flooring or non-carpet flooring? There's no real way where we could say this is what the ultimate market share is going to be. But if you think about just the value prop of carpet versus hardwood flooring, hard surface floors are much easier to maintain. They're cheaper, they're durable, and they generally look better. And if you really do want carpet, you could always lay an area rug on top of that. And that area rug is not included in the flooring, Tam. So just for a lot of reasons, it seems like people are going to continue to prefer hard surface floors. Yeah, you spoke my logic there. Can always buy a rug rather than install a carpet, but I never thought wallpaper would make a comeback. And here we are today, many years later. You mentioned the shift in ownership. I guess it was around 2009, 2010 timeframe. Was that a big inflection for the business as well? How much of the origin story included the expansion to what is a national footprint now. How much of that came before the shift in ownership versus after the shift in ownership? There's not a lot of details on their early history when they're private. We know that they had, I believe it was around 25 stores when that ownership took change. And then when Tom Taylor took the reins, he doubled the store footprint before they went public in 2017. So you could already see they were starting to grow it as a chain concept, but it really exploded once they got that format right and once Tom Taylor was installed. What does the business look like today? How do they break down and segment the different areas of the business? What does a store look like? Maybe you can describe that a little bit and how the management team really describes Floor & Decor. Just to kind of start super high level with what is Floor & Decor, they sell flooring and they sell decor. (laughs) It's right there in the name, really. They're a specialty chain retailer. They focus primarily on the hard surface flooring market, as we mentioned, and they have a few main product segments. Their biggest one is this LVP, luxury vinyl planks and laminate. That's about 26% of their sales, followed by tile, and then followed by 
wall tile, and then after that is going to be installation materials. Those four categories are their biggest ones, and stone and actual hardwood floors are relatively small. And does that match the market as a whole in terms of hardwood floor representing a small piece of floor and decor's overall business segment mix? Is that the same for the overall market as well? It's roughly the same. Floor and decor might under-index a little bit on the hardwood flooring specifically and over-index on some of the other items. Generally speaking, though, if you think about the replacement life, it's much shorter for LVP and for laminate flooring than it is for real hardwood floors, which can last 100 years. So that's also part of it. In terms of the competitive set here and who they're competing with, I imagine Home Depot and Lowe's are up there in terms of floor sales. But are there other independent players or niche-focused players like floor and decor in the market? And has that shifted much over the history of the business? So the way I would think about competition is I would bucket them into three segments. I would say it's one-third these home improvement centers. That's the Home Depot. That's the Lowe's. Then it's one-third these specialty chains. And then one-third independents, mom and pops. You just mentioned the home improvement centers. I would say that is their biggest competition today. Home Depot outsells floor and decor with almost $10 billion of flooring revenue versus floor and decor, which is a little over four. And Lowe's is also ahead of them at around $5 billion. That's their number one competition there. Within the independents, the mom and pops, this is a varied group of sellers. They tend to have higher prices because they can't quite procure stuff the same way, but they also have better service. They'll have a lot of loyal customers, but they are taking share from that segment. And then the one-third segment that Floor & Decor sits in, that's the specialty chain retailers. Now, within this, there's LO Flooring and the Tile Shop. Those are the two public players. And then there's some other regional players. LO Flooring, I guess, is really the only other pure play flooring retailer. Just a little bit on their background. They are much smaller store formats, so they don't have these warehouse stores like Floor and Decor has. They have all of the samples out in front, but they don't have any in-stock inventory. And that is very important for these pros and a lot of consumers who come to a store. They want to be able to walk out with the product. If you think that you are a pro and you have to go install for a job and you can't get that product when you walk out the door, you might be messing up your schedule. You might be moving jobs. You might lose a job. If you're a building owner and you can't get the flooring in today, then you're losing rent. So it really does equate to revenue for them. So in-stock inventory is very important. LL Flooring also has been embroiled in some scandals. I don't know if you're aware, but there was a 2015-2016 60-minute expose. They basically were questioning them along the lines that they figured out testing in the formaldehyde of the plank boards they were selling was too high. Long story short, there were lawsuits, there were scandals. The founder left, then he started his own thing, got sued by the company for violating a non-compete clause. Then on top of that, they had a separate scandal for purchasing illegally logged lumber. And then there was also an acquisition attempt that failed. So there's been a lot going on there that's kept them distracted. And now they're in turnaround mode. They renamed their company from Lumber Liquidators because even though they were selling flooring, everyone would call them thinking that they actually were real lumber liquidators. And that's what one of the reps complained to us about. So now they're called LO Flooring. What that name means, I don't know, but they're trying again. Yeah, that's a fascinating bit of gossip slash soap opera. And I guess it always helps when your competition finds ways to shoot themselves in the foot. You mentioned a little bit about 
the in-stock inventory being a differentiator for the business. What else differentiates it from maybe the other specialty stores? And then we can take it and compare it to uh, Home Depot or Lowe's as well. So with floor and decor, it all starts with the warehouse. Once you're in a warehouse format, you can start thinking of the other pieces that fall together. What a warehouse store format enables is basically the back room and the storefront to be meshed together. So now you have more square footage that can be devoted to retail space. When you walk into a floor and decor, what you'll see is just rows and rows and rows of flooring everywhere. The ceilings have prices all over the place and the walls are covered with different samples. And when you're walking down, you see that every row of flooring has behind it pallets of inventory. That is great because now people know, okay, the inventory is right there. It's in stock. I could just grab it. I don't even need help. But if I do need help, there is staff and all of that. So you have the inventory, you have the selection, and then powering all of that is the fact that they use a direct sourcing model. This is what everyone in theory would want to do to be able to cut out the wholesaler, the middleman, and go direct to the supplier. But in practice, it's very tricky to do this. They navigate 24 different countries and over 240 different suppliers, each of which they need to have sufficient volume across every SKU to be able to get that preferential pricing. That is not easy to do. Our understanding is that Home Depot can't even do this with all of their SKUs. They still use some of the wholesalers and distributors. So their ability to go direct, it's very similar to any economies of scale or Costco. They're able to place their volumes with them. That comes back in the form of lower pricing. They're able to lower their pricing, sell more stuff. The average floor and decor at maturity can sell almost $30 million of flooring per store. So you have the selection, the in-stock inventory, the direct sourcing model, and then a couple other things they have is the expert staff, they can help you out, but then also in-store designers who you can say, I'm trying to renovate my living room. Here's the dimensions. They'll help you pick what to do. They'll help you show you how much you need, how to cut it and all of that, which is very helpful. And then the last piece of that is going to be the pro segment that they have. The pro segment, it's kind of similar to Home Depot. It's kind of similar to Sherwin-Williams. What they're doing there is they're focusing on their customers that come the most. If you're a pro installer, you're there all the time. So they cater them. They have a pro mobile app, which allows them to do curbside pickup. They have a dedicated pro help desk. They let their pros leave inventory there charge free for up to a week. They even will let them borrow excess stuff and whatever they don't use on the job, they could return it with no restocking fees. And on top of that, they have a loyalty program, which I believe it's about 60% of people are now enrolled in. And once they can enroll a pro in this loyalty program, their spend goes up three times. That brings up a question I wanted to ask in terms of their customer. I think you mentioned or referenced several times the benefits for pros. Do they give you that business mix in terms of what percentage of their customers are pros versus DIY consumers? They do. So the way they break it out is they'll say 15% of customers are these DIYs. 45% are BIY. And so that's buy it yourself. These are customers who will go in there. They'll shop for what they want. They'll bring it out. And then they'll hire someone to install it for them. And then the remainder is going to be the pro segment. It's a little confusing because they attribute 30% of sales directly to pros, but they'll say pros influence 40% of sales. So that's a pro telling someone, go to floor and decor, buy what you want, and then I'll install it for you. Yeah, it's interesting because the more you work with pros, the more it introduces a reoccurring customer versus the consumer. My immediate reaction to this was, well, I might use them once or twice as a customer. 
not thinking about the obvious business segment of pros that's out there. The sourcing model is really interesting. I think that's an immediate standout. And I think you wrote about this in your piece. There's similarities here to a Costco. Where did that really begin? I imagine at the origin level, it's hard to get that type of benefit or those type of economics when you're starting out with a very small footprint. Was there a key driver in terms of tapping into that sourcing power or really leveraging what they had in terms of a footprint and getting closer to the inventory providers out there? It really is a chicken and egg problem because you can't really do it until you have the volumes that allow you to go ahead and place them with all these different manufacturers. I don't know the exact history of when they started doing that. Lisa Lobb was someone who helped them with all of their international procurement and was involved in the supply chain for a while. And so they have a whole team that deals with that. I mentioned before that Home Depot, they tried some of this and they even cut back and now they're still using the two main wholesalers and distributors. It's similar for Lowe's, except Lowe's is even farther behind. Lowe's, funny enough, actually tried to copy Floor & Decor in two of their stores. They noticed Floor & Decor, they know they're doing well. And so they said, we're going to go ahead and try to copy their model. One of the things they tried to do was go direct to the distributors. They found, though, that it didn't work unless you had all these other pieces because they didn't have the distribution centers to carry all the inventory and wouldn't all fit in their stores. So they ended up with this Frankenstein version of a floor and decor. And that's kind of like a bigger point, too, which is that when you're stuck with a legacy business and you're trying to optimize for multiple variables, usually the outcome is subpar. Absolutely. I think there's a few lessons there being a specialist and finding ways to beat the generalists, digging your roots deeper into the industry and getting closer to those suppliers is a really interesting strategy that I think has worked in various industries. I'm curious in terms of the brands and the labels that they carry, have they tried to do anything private label or in-house? And is that part of their strategy at some point in the future? Or is it all just carrying third-party brands And how do those brand relationships work? Are you basically getting access to everything at Floor & Decor? Are there special relationships that exist? It's interesting because everyone tends to have their own brands and there's not any really well-known flooring brands that when you go to purchase flooring, you're not purchasing a brand, you're purchasing the specific look, the quality. There's no real brands that are notable for anyone, but they do still have 60 proprietary brands. A lot of these are brands they created They'll have different technologies within it, waterproofing, water resistant, like a different kind of snappable floor. They'll try to patent it if they can, but a lot of people are able to come up with similar products over time. I wouldn't say that brand's a big thing, but their products are only sold within the floor and decor stores. Maybe we can start to talk about the four wall economics or four floor economics. Sounds like there's floors on the ceilings, on the walls, on the grounds. How do they approach a new store? And maybe you can walk us through the economic model there in terms of how products are priced and all the different things that go into it. There's a new store model. They had an old one, but they've since refined it. I'll talk about the new one, but we could talk about the improvements too. The new store model is they're spending 8 to $10 million in a capital outlay to build a new store. This is including inventory, net of payables. That 8 to $10 million will go into the fixtures, getting the store ready and all of that. Then within the first year, they're making roughly a 20% return on invested capital. By year three, if you use their EBITDA figure, it's about a 50% cash on cash return on our figures by year five, year six. 
on operating income, you're able to get that 50% return on invested capital at the store level. A payback period for each store is about two and a half to three and a half years. It's a very strong unit economic model. There's a couple other factors to this, which is their distribution centers. Right now, they have four of them, which has been sufficient for their current footprint of over 180 stores, but they're in process of building two more. If you think about inventory turns for them versus Home Depot, they're much lower. They're at around 2.4, something like that, versus Home Depot, which is five and a half around there. Part of that is because they have to have a large amount of inventory in stock. But part of that also is because they're still going to benefit in the future from more distribution center leverage, which is kind of a weird thing to think about. Essentially, the distribution centers are what house a ton of inventory when they directly source from a manufacturer, get shipped to the distribution center before it goes to all of these separate stores. When you're building out a new store, you might only need in total about $4 million of new inventory and a mature store might be doing 28 million. So that is a seven times inventory turn. So it's like, why is that seven times, but the company level two and a half? It's because of all the inventory that sits in the distribution centers. So as they continue to build out their store footprint, you'll see that inventory efficiency really improve. And what does that mature footprint look like? I assume there's some type of goal or estimate that they want to get to. What does that look like? Their target is 500 stores. 500 stores that includes the warehouse format stores, and then also these newer stores that are design studios. These are basically just extensions of the warehouse, only show samples, are targeting very populous metropolitan areas, but they're only going to do maybe 30 to 40 of those. So it's still mostly these warehouse format stores. They want to achieve 500 of these. And then the other layer of that, and we haven't really talked about this yet because it's still pretty new, but there is a commercial opportunity as well. Yeah, maybe we can talk about that. What exists as that commercial opportunity? Everything we've talked about so far is generally known as the R&R, the remove and replace. This is targeting the retails, the smaller pros and all of that. The commercial opportunity, and this can be split into two again, but the commercial opportunity is targeting building owners, architecture and design firms, developers. The commercial opportunity is split again in two pieces. There's something called soft spec and hard spec. And spec is short for specification. Within the hard spec, that is usually going to be an architecture and design firm that says, I want this exact dark mahogany wood plank in this size. How cheap can you get it for me? And that's going to be a bid-based business usually. Obviously, anything that's bid-based is not that exciting. The benefit to floor and decor, though, is they're able to basically feed that volume into their direct sourcing model and all the inventory they already have on hand. So hopefully, it's just all incremental to them. Then the other side of that, that's the soft spec business. That's when someone is a little more unsure of what they want. They might just say, oh, I want a dark wood, but you know, I'm open to exactly if it's LVP or laminate in the exact shape. So that business is served by what they call regional account managers, which is basically a sales force. They're going out, they're trying to sell the inventory floor and decor already has on hand. Both these businesses together make up the commercial opportunity. We didn't talk about this before, but floor and decor, similar to Costco, they do everyday low pricing, the same price for everyone, consumers, pros alike, no discounting. So you're not habituating consumers to prolonged purchases. And you're not also reducing trust by saying, oh, this could have really been sold 30% off. 
all of their discounting, they relegate to their commercial channels. So it's out of sight of everyone else. So if you are buying something from a commercial channel, there is some discounts. Exactly what those are, we've seen 5 to 20%. We tried getting quotes. We couldn't get a hard quote, though. Within that, though, there's also a lot less OPEX associated with it. So theoretically, it could still be higher margin. There's no real figures out there that we can have confidence in that. And is that the same competitor set in the commercial business? Home Depot, Lowe's, or LL, do they compete in that commercial business? Not as much. I mean, not the home improvement centers. Sometimes if you're a smaller contractor, then maybe you're still going to a Home Depot. But Sean and Mohawk are two of those wholesalers. It's a different competitor set. Just thinking about that business, how big is it today relative to the traditional business? If you think about that $41 billion TAM we talked about, I believe it's about $25 billion of that is the R&R. That's the retail side. And then the remainder, $16 billion, is going to be the commercial opportunity. So it's reasonable to think that floor and decor today at $4 billion of revenue has, let's call it, just under 20% of that R&R market. Is that right? Yeah. They have a little bit of commercial sales now. And it's confusing because they do have the regional account managers that sell out of the current floor and decors that exist. So there's a bit of an overlap there. Overall, it's about a 10% market share. And over time, they're trying to target a one-third. Yeah, the lines always get blurred between these market sizes, but helpful for context. How does that all flow through from a bottom line perspective? I understand they're reinvesting a lot in the business or the cash flow. Economics might still be in growth mode or expansion mode, but just from an earnings profile, what does that look like? So right now, as I mentioned, they have a little bit over $4 billion in revenue. They're running around a 10% operating margin, and they've talked about a mature margin looking more like high EBITDA mid-teens, which you could add in layer in DNA, and that gets you to about a 15% operating margin. So the difference between that and today is all of these growth expenses. And also just the fact that once you open up a store, it takes a few years for revenues to fully ramp up at that store. Today, it's about $400 million in EBITDA. But over time, they're targeting these 500 stores. If you think about $30 million at each store, $15 billion in revenue, you think about a 15% operating margin tax it at 20%. And you're looking at $1.7, $1.8 billion in no pat there. That's against a market cap today of $8 billion. Really interesting. It's still quite a bit of growth runway. The 15% mature operating margin is interesting just because I just had this conversation on Home Depot and they got close to, I think they're around 20% now. Is that 500 basis point difference intentional? I know you mentioned and importance of being the low-cost provider and passing on some of those savings to customers. I'm just curious if there's anything else that would drive that 500 basis points difference in terms of mature margin profile. We talked a little bit about potential leverage that could exist once they better utilize their distribution centers. I don't know if that could be another source. And then also the commercial opportunity potentially is just using all of their existing assets and inventory. And if they're not discounting that much, that could be a higher margin business as well. Whether or not they ever get to 20%, I would probably think no. I would imagine they're sharing some of those gains with their consumers. Nick Sleep with his Costco investment, I believe it was in a 2006 letter that he had. He talked about how analysts are always griping on why Costco is only at a 3% margin, where Walmart's at 5%. So everyone wanted them to just raise pricing a little bit and take that difference. 
Costco, of course, was adamant that they would not do that. You could think about the reason why and what you're doing when you're really satisfying a consumer beyond the point that they would have already sufficiently purchased from you. You're building consumer surplus. And another way of saying you're building consumer surplus is you're building loyalty. And so if you think about like an LTV to CAC calculation, one of the most important inputs is churn. If your churn is high, your LTV very quickly falls apart, even if you can increase revenue in a single period. So effectively, what they're doing by sharing these economies with the consumers, they're building consumer surplus, which over time should build more loyal consumers. You could almost think about it as consumer surplus as a form of CAC strategy. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And 2005, Nick Sleep letter, but an excellent one and one we can link into the episode show notes for sure. I think that likely answers my next question. But one of the things that immediately stood out to me was that this is an owned and operated strategy. It's not something that's franchised. Is that ever in question or is that ever anything that they've explored franchising these locations? I'm not aware that they have and I would hope they don't. I think you gave good reasoning for why. Pulling back a little bit to an earlier point you mentioned on the R&R, the rip and replace strategy, that to me would say that this is not necessarily tied to housing units being built. It's more tied to general maintenance or makeovers, renovations. But when you think about sales in general, how correlated is it to any type of macro measures? And is there any way that you think about growth aside from just the footprint growth and more tied to the economy? If you look at during the financial crisis, they weren't public at the time, but they talked about it a bit and they more or less just grew through it because they were pretty small and it wasn't much of an issue, but they are much larger now. So it'd kind of be foolish to say they're not going to be impacted at all if there's a recession and consumer spend slumps. These are infrequent purchases of durable goods. You could defer them in the short term, but you're not going to defer them forever. They're still important, essential things to your life. Most of the time, it's considered that it's a reinvestment in your home, so it increases your home value. There's reason why it's not going to be delayed forever. Having said that, I tend to think of it like what you're trying to do here is you're trying to buy a company as a very strong ship. You don't buy a ship or build a ship saying that there's not going to be storms, but rather you build a ship to withstand the storm. And so if there is some sort of calamity the bigger picture of whether or not their value prop is superior to enough people that they can reach their 500 store target, I definitely think so. The next question would just be in terms of how much it ties into the business mix as well. I'll start with, do the different segments have drastically different margin profiles? Is laminate different from tile or different from wall tile? Are there many differences in terms of that? They personally don't break it out. They do have a peer, the tile shop I mentioned that's public. They have very high gross margins, approaching high 60s versus floor and decor, who's at 41. They're all tile. So from that, you could gather that tile has higher margins. But the thing is, they're also tend to be very higher priced as well. Some people call them a ripoff. So it's hard how much you could read into that. Generally speaking, I would just say the margins are about the same, especially the way floor and decor prices it. And have they expanded much in terms of the decorative accessories or goods outside of traditional flooring? I know they offer some of these accessories, but how key is that to the growth strategy? The decor side of floor and decor. Yeah, the beyond side of Bed Bath & Beyond. These, uh, as they call them, adjacent categories are just about 1% to 2% of revenues today. 
they have been expanding into this more. They have vanities, all of these different light fixtures, bathroom faucets and stuff. So a lot in the bathroom. This definitely has been something that they're hoping that they could just cross-sell people where they come in, they're looking for flooring, especially if you're with the designer, maybe they can cross-sell them on a few of these other items. They still are adamant that they need to just be a go-to flooring space. And so they're not going to commit too much square footage for that. But if anything, if you're like, what could a risk be? It could be just confused consumer value prop if they continue to overexpand these adjacent categories. If you just think about risks more broadly, obviously, there's the short-term risks in terms of macro cycles. But one of the things that I was curious about is how e-commerce impacts them, if at all. It's a theme in any type of business that you look at. The brick and mortar concept, while I actually think in a higher interest rate environment and with advertising costs having gone up, it might become back in vogue to at least have a physical footprint. But it does stand as a risk, I think, to any type of business that relies on physical sales. How does that play into the story here? What percentage of their business today is done online, if any at all? And how do you think about that as being a risk or a tailwind potentially for the business? So just high level, today they have about 16% of their sales are done through their online channels. If you think about trying to buy flooring online, it's very hard because you're not exactly sure what it looks like. You don't know what it feels like. Sometimes you could look at a picture and the quality is way different in person. That's especially the case when LVP, it's like printed on. So it's very hard to tell until you get closer what the quality really is. You can look on Amazon and search LVP laminate flooring. And there are options and they will ship it to you sometimes for free. A lot of these are third-party merchants with very mixed reviews. It's not a good product selection and you've got to go through it all the same way you might have to go through on eBay to figure out whether or not the seller's honest and all that. And a lot of that will negate the typical value prop Amazon has, which is convenience. Within that 16%, I said, of floor and decor customers who purchase online, 79% of them pick up in store. So that still goes to show how important it is having the physical retail footprint. Now, maybe Amazon can do something like they did with Best Buy, where you can go and see appliances in person and they have some partnership there. I don't know that this is a big focus for them. One of the takeaways here, especially with Lowe's attempts to try to mimic floor and decor, is just when you have a company that is relentlessly pursuing a singular goal it is very hard to catch up to them unless you are willing to sacrifice some of the things you are currently doing. So yes, online is an opportunity and threat for them. On top of that, one other thing that's worth mentioning is that when we talked about brands, I said there wasn't a lot of brands. That means that this is a very hard segment to Google. You cannot really Google, okay, dark plank wood. There's going to be hundreds of options. You're not going to know the waterproofing, the quality, whether it's a glue-on or it snaps in. There's a lot of different variables that it's almost easier to just drive 30 minutes to the floor in a core and see it yourself and talk to the experts. Yeah, the buy online and pick up in store or BOPIS, as I tried to speak into existence many years ago, but never really caught on. It's interesting to see just how much of those online sales are picked up in store. And I think it passes any type of logical test in terms of the feel and touching something like flooring, which can be incredibly hard to really understand when you're looking at something online. I also think there's something to the price point where many people just simply use stores to sort through products, feel them, but then we'll try to go online to see if they can source it for cheaper, which is why being the low cost provider is really important to the story here. Was there any type of 
channel check testing that you did in your research to confirm that they actually are offering the lowest price. I know you mentioned it's kind of hard to compare apples to apples with brands because you're not getting that type of detail. How much confirmation were you able to get that they truly are a low cost provider? We did the store checks. We picked out specific SKUs. We tried to compare the best we can, pricing and all that. And I would say Floor & Decor, they practice what's known as good, better, best pricing. So there's a range of different pricing across different qualities. And it looks like Home Depot does something similar. So you could find stuff that looks similar in the same price ranges. But it's hard, at least for me, to say this exact grain texture on this dark mahogany is the same as the one Home Depot sells, but they all have something that looks similar. So that was it on the price checks. And then it was also just talking to a lot of consumers and pros. Most pros that we talked to, they did say that Floor & Decor was at least the same price, if not cheaper. When we did talk to some of the CEMs, they don't have store managers. They're called CEMs. That's chief executive merchants. They did say that they would price match whatever else we could find. He said he was adamant he would not be beat on price. Just to pause on that real quick too, the selection they have within the Floor & Decor is actually in part assorted by the CEMs who are able to practice micro-merchandising and able to select the products within the store. It's an offering that's catered to the local market. Yeah, it's interesting to add a curator or a buyer into the mix. And I think that can actually have a pretty relevant impact understanding your locale. Has there been much variance in terms of store level performance when you move from region to region? Is there anything noteworthy in terms of the expansion efforts and whether they've seen any type of failures? Or has it been fairly steady in terms of store performance? As far as what they would publicly talk about, There are a few stores that they would close down and then reopen new, bigger stores in the area. But that's more just because the stores were dated. And rather than fixing them up, it made sense to just move to a different location. And maybe they also learned the market better. Within our channel checks, a couple things showed up where there were some underperforming stores. And what they would basically do in that scenario is they'd pick a CEM who was doing really well in his area and ask him to try to lead that store. So there were a few times where it was a rough start to the store getting it going. But once they figured it out and got the formula right, then they were approaching the same sales cadence as all of them. Is the footprint entirely in the US? Is there any type of international exposure? Entirely in the US. They don't talk about international. They don't currently have ambitions for that, but they'll tease you a little bit where they're like, we'll talk about it after we hit our 500 stores. Yeah, put the cart before the horse. Don't count the chickens before they hatch. All of that makes a lot of sense. I think we've touched on a lot of obvious growth opportunities, the market share that they're going after, the expansion in terms of footprint. Is there anything else that you think about in terms of the growth story that we haven't discussed? I would say it's just how all of these elements come together. And we touched on this a little bit with the competitive factors and all of that. But when you think about starting with the warehouse store, it enables all of these other elements that fall into place. So if you have a big warehouse store, then you're going to want to have a lot of products. And if you have a lot of products, you're going to want a lot of inventory. And if you have a lot of inventory, you're going to go need and procure that from someone. You're going to be able to go direct. So that enables the direct sourcing model. And then once you're directly sourcing, then you can reduce your prices and increase your volume. So you could get this flywheel effect. As far as other growth factors go, it's three things driving their growth. You have the new store openings. They're aiming to open 20% new stores each year. 
then there's the same store sales factor. The same source sale factor, it kind of gets a little convoluted because what happens is once a store opens, it could take three to five years to fully ramp up to maturity. It falls into the same store sales base at the end of year one. So when you're looking at historically, they've had about 14% same store sales growth. Some of that is just new stores ramping up. Those three factors, I think, are important to watch. And then within that, it's what the mature stores, same store sales growth is. So they don't talk about this usually, but they have said it once or twice that a mature store is still growing same store sales about mid single digits. So this whole model we talked about, about hitting this 30 million in revenue, that could just be the beginning. They could potentially grow thereafter. I don't know whether they break it down, but is there some assumption in that in terms of volume versus price? Not really. I mean, they'll talk about average ticket price versus customer transactions. And so you could see most of the revenue growth has been customers' transactions, with the exception of last year, year and a half, where not only inflation hitting pricing a little bit, but also they've talked about a shift to more premiumization. It's mostly just getting more customers in the door and selling more flooring. Your point on the flywheel is interesting too, because I think many people jump on the ideas of these asset light software or tech-focused flywheels. The capital-intensive flywheels, which I think this is here, at least upfront, it requires capital to build out the stores, to build out the inventory and the distribution centers, to have those relationships. Well, that can be painful and cash-intensive and initially maybe not that attractive to investors upfront. When they hit maturity or when slash if they have success, those barriers to entry can be even stronger, I think, than something that's just done based on network effect, like some of the social networks that we've seen that have had big rises, but also come down to life. How has the investment story gone in terms of shareholders focus on the name, how much interest there's been in the name? Again, I mentioned at the top of the episode, I think we're flirting with a $10 billion enterprise value at this point. So it has had some success in terms of growth. But when you think about it from an investor standpoint, as a potential shareholder, what's the general sentiment around the name? How much interest does it get? And how do you think about that as well? I just want to remark something on your first point, the ROIC point. You're right that when you do have a company that focuses on physical assets, and they have unique physical assets and a footprint, it tends to create a mode of sort where it is harder to go ahead and attack them. And then the second aspect of that is the best business you actually want to consume a lot of capital, but make sure they're getting a very strong ROIC on that. So if Florida Decor can continue to get a 50% cash on cash return after three years, I want them to continue to build out as many stores as possible. So back to your question now about investor sentiment and all that. They originally IPO'd in 2017. I believe the initial share price was about $21. And before the big sell-off this year, it flirted with $130 or a little higher. Now it's around $70 to $80 a share. As far as notable investors, Berkshire Hathaway does have around a 5% position in the company. That's actually a risk, not a benefit, because if they ever do decide to just buy out the whole company, there's not really much we could do about that. I think a lot of people focus on these shorter term trends. They're saying, I'm worried about higher interest rates. I'm worried about housing falling off. And I think I could buy the stock back at another time when these things aren't happening. I much prefer to look at it with a reverse DCF. So you're just inverting all of these questions and you're saying, the price you're paying for today, what is it implying is going to happen? And is the return you're seeing on reasonable assumptions worth it? And so that's what we detail out in our report. Old Mobus and Love. 
to start to end the podcast. I love it. No, I think all those points there in terms of where that capital is going and the return on that capital and trusting the capital allocation of the management team. If you can get that type of return by building on a footprint, absolutely. You're more than willing to have them reinvest those dollars. Any other risks that we haven't talked about? I think you mentioned the short-term dynamics that they might see an impact from, but anything else that would keep you up at night as an investor? Something I like about floor and decor is there's no one real existential risk, at least that I could think about, knock on wood. But if you think about there's a confluence of different things that could happen that could definitely be not good for them. One of them could be these home improvement centers, which now if they don't have something in stock could take upwards of a week to get it into stock. If they continue to build out their distribution centers and they streamline their logistics, then you could be seeing maybe one two-day delivery or something like that. And that wouldn't mean they're winning all purchases, but a good portion could go to them, especially because they have a convenient and wide store footprint. So that could eat into them. The second thing is in management, seems a little perplexed that this hasn't happened, but there's never been a copycat retailer that copies their warehouse store format and their whole model. Everyone else is only kind of nipped at little pieces of it. So there could potentially, same way Lowe's came after Home Depot, there could be a copycat who just copies everything. It's kind of interesting because and you've uh, ever read the book Secrets of Our Success, Joseph Henrik, I believe, he talks about how all of these different tribes would have these very complex processes. He observed the South American tribe would try to eat this tubular, but it was poisonous. So before they could eat it, they had to boil it, they had to bury it, they did all these other things. So it's a very complex thing. And the explorers went and saw this and they thought, oh, well, all these steps are superfluous. All that really matters is boiling this and then I'll eat it and it won't be poisonous. So they just boiled it and then they died because it turned out when you left it in the sand, it actually absorbed some of the poison and all of that. So why am I bringing up this very eccentric story is because I see with a lot of other companies, they'll try to copy just one aspect of it and not the whole thing. The biggest threat for a copycat is not someone who says, oh, I'm going to also try to do direct sourcing. Oh, I'm going to also try to have more selection. It's someone who does the whole thing. And they're not embarrassed to say that floor and decor has every single step right. And let's just not change any of it. I love that. And how fitting our relationship started with you giving me book recommendations in a small Goldman office. And we can close out the episode with another good book recommendation. But I think there's a lot of truth to that statement. Copycats do come along, but how often do they actually copy the entire strategy? I think you're right. People try to pick the little pieces of the story that they like and sometimes miss the point that it's the entire system that makes it work. Well, thanks, Drew. We close these conversations out with lessons that you can take away from analyzing the business or researching the business that you might be able to apply to other types of work and other types of research, just higher level lessons that you've learned from looking at the business. What would you point to in terms of floor and decor as a key lesson that you might share with investors? I would say focus is one of the most important things. When you have a company, and I've said this before, but is relentlessly pursuing a singular goal, that is very hard to compete against. Because if you think about any sort of optimization equation, you have all these different variables and you can only really optimize for a limited set. The more variables you're trying to optimize for, the less optimal your outcome is ultimately going to be. So having 
a specialty chain retailer saying, I just want to be the best at hard surface flooring. It's very hard for anyone else to come in there and just as a part-time job, beat them into that. I would say that's one thing. The other thing kind of harks back to what I just said, which is all of these interlocking pieces going together. You need the warehouse format stores. You need the direct sourcing. You need the selection. You need the pricing. Then you need the customer service. You need all of this to work together to really get that unique value prop that properly hits on a consumer's hierarchy of preferences. I would say that's the other thing. The last thing I would say is looking at this business, it was very interesting because I spent a lot of time in my past job looking at internet companies. And when you look at internet companies and you talk about risk, your minds can go crazy. You could think about a hundred things that can happen. And when I'm talking about floor decor and thinking about it, I feel like I can't come up with any prosaic, real existential risks, which is a distinction from most other businesses I've looked at. I love that. Well, this has been a blast, a little different type of business that we're covering here on this breakdown. Thanks a ton for joining me. Yeah, thanks, Matt. To find more episodes of breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 